You're listening to the True Life Church Podcast. Sermons are recorded at our Sunday gatherings from Melbourne, Florida. True Life Church guides people to take the next steps in their relationship with Jesus Christ, to grow, belong, and serve. We hope this audio message encourages you to take your own next steps in faith. If you'd like to know more about our church or attend one of our gatherings, find us online at www.truelifemelbourne.com. Today's message comes from lead pastor Joshua Smith. to be here with y'all in, in church. Good news is, only uh, mark your calendars, it's 11.05, we're getting started in the sermon. And so if we get started earlier, I'll probably just preach longer. Uh, so, um, we are again, obviously, as the video has reminded us, in a series, an ongoing series in Acts. And uh, last week, we talked about part one of Saul's conversion. We're going to continue kind of into part two today. And go a little bit farther, but um, he had a bright light shown all around him, heard a voice on the road to Damascus as Saul was on his way to persecute, probably imprison and possibly kill um, followers of the way, uh, early Christians. And so he was on this six-day journey uh, from Jerusalem to Damascus and on the road uh, encountered Jesus. And uh, the voice said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Hi, I'm Jesus. Jesus, who you're persecuting. See the name tag? It's right there. So, okay. He couldn't. He was blind uh, for the next three days um, and, until uh, uh, God worked a man named Ananias to come and pray uh, and lay hands on Saul um, in Damascus. And, uh, and he was healed from his sight. Scales fail, fell from his eyes and he could see. And from that moment, Saul was a different dude. He was a different man. And we talked about the really what the, a true conversion experience is. It's funny because last week uh, I gave an analogy of, imagine that at one end of the room is chainsaws and flamethrowers, and at the other end is, is, it, is not that, you know. It's just, I don't know, fields of Skittles or something. I don't know, whatever it is. But flames and chainsaws, absolute death, and, and humanity and our choices and in our sin... We're always walking that way. Some of us are running that way, and that way leads to death. And uh, I'll, I'll, I'll brag on it because even in weakness, God's strength is shown. Uh, I had a little, Josh Bowman was in here last week, uh, sitting right up here. And the reason he was in here was because he wasn't behaving in his glass. Not, not ideal. So he was brought in. This is the punishment, you know. You're not good in there. You get brought in to hear Josh speak. So... Uh, so this is the punishment he's brought in and di- discipline. We'll go with that, discipline. So he's brought into discipline and, and he came in right at the chainsaws and the flamethrowers. Like what happens if we're running this way and from an eight-year-old or turn around? Yes, yes, there it is. I could have just dropped the mic and, and, and walked out of that. Turn around, right? So before we get into our main scripture today, you can remain seated for this one, but I want to remind us of this is what Saul and Paul, as his name is changed, later writes in 1 Corinthians 6, uh, 9 through 11. Hooray, we're starting off in the deep end of 
Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And there's a lot of deceit out there today, even from many pulpits and many churches. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And you and I may have fallen at one point into that category. I know I did. But thanks be to God, he continues, and such, and if this word is not underlined in your Bible, I encourage you to, such were some of you. The old is gone, the new has come. Saul, who became again Paul, just a name change, who's writing this, knew probably at least as good, if not better than most, what this, and such were some of you, meant. Because he was on the road, throwing them in jail, overseeing their execution. And then here he is, saying, actually, wow, I, I had the whole thing wrong. I was those guys. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so as we're talking about Saul and his conversion... A life, convert, a life converted by and for Christ will be evident to all. I'll let that think, think in for a minute. Not sink in. I want to let that think in for a minute. I don't have a lisp. I want to let that think in for a minute. A life converted by and for Christ will be evident to all. Everybody's going to know. A life converted by and for Christ will be able to look back at who you were before and say, yeah, I, I was that, and such was I. I was some of those. I was a liar. Or I had a porn addiction. As far as the Bible's concerned, that was, that's adultery. And many of you know, uh, early on in my marriage, over a decade ago now, 12 years removed, I struggled with that based on who I was out of college. But... Such were some of you. I can look back now and be, wow, that's not that. And why? Because Jesus. I was immoral or an idolater or that list. I was a cheater. I was greedy. I was an abuser. I was an addict. I was gay. I was a drunk. I was a thief. But now I am free and I'm not those things. And we know that. So a life converted by and for Christ will be evident to all. And, and it took a guy like Saul 180 degrees from chainsaws and flamethrowers to run in the other way. I don't know about you, but I like nature shows. I don't watch a lot of live TV except college football season, which is 23 days away if you're counting. Yes. But who's counting, right? Uh, I mean, it's only the returning national champions is my team. So get that in there. Anyway... Go Bulldogs. Uh, so the, I like nature shows, and, uh, and we'll be talking about that a little bit later also. But one of, the, one of the analogies that I think God has given us in the world that he created is, have you ever seen a salmon swim upstream? Like, not necessarily in person. I watch it on the, on the TV because it gets cold where salmon live, like snow and things, and Alaska and faraway places. And we're not that, right? We're absent mountains or, or cute streams. 
Anyway, and these salmon will swim for miles and miles and miles and miles against the current, hopping over rapids even and jumping, and then every once in a while a bear is like, yum, and, then, and, then they, and they keep going because what happens when they get there? That's where the spawning happens, and life happens there. And for us, it's almost like culture is whoosh, the current, and the world is the current, and even some other Christian Christian, I use that term loosely, is, is the current saying, oh, this is just not that. They're bypassing scriptures like this and others. Is, here's the current, here's the current. And we are called to, in a, in a way, swim upstream. You know, the, the sign of the early way is the little ictus, the cross, right? And so the fish, I was just thinking, it's just like, man, we're swimming upstream. Why? Because that way's life. Is it hard? Yes. Sometimes. But we're not going to go that way. That way leads to death. And I'm wondering how many have in their lifetime said yes, thinking they said yes to Jesus, but said yes to a pamphlet. Said, said yes to peer pressure. How many said yes to Jesus in a concert experience in a stadium? Because the feeling was there, the emotion was there. Or, or at a summer camp somewhere, how, you know, I knew kids growing up that converted their life to Jesus like three or four times because it's just what they did every summer. You know, if you've been there, you might be able to laugh about that with me. All right, John's converted again. You know, see how long this one lasts. Like, because they were running to a feeling. They running to emotion. They were running to an experience. And when you encounter the real and living Jesus Christ, he changes you and you know it. It's one of the reasons I think Jesus said, some will cry out to me, Lord, Lord, I never knew you. But didn't we do all these things? Yeah, yeah, you did stuff. You didn't know me. The gospel is this, is that we are sinners who have broken God's law, that no one, no, no one, no one in here is completely exempt from being a liar, a thief, an adulterer, a drunk, committing murder or lust or evil in our hearts as Jesus raised the level to in Matthew chapter 5 and 6. We deserve death for our sins against God and a just and eternal God will punish justly and eternally. The good news, and this is why it is good news, this is why we sing, as we talked about earlier, this is why we celebrate, this is why we have new life in Christ, because we have good news. And the good news is that God, in his love and mercy, sent the Son, Jesus Christ, to stand in our place and receive the punishment on our behalf. That those of us who would believe and obey and turn from our wicked ways and repent of our sin would have freedom from those sins. Not freedom from being sinful, but freedom from the punishment that we were due. And more than that, but wait, there's more. Everlasting life until the fullest. Thanks be to God for this. Those of us who are saved, bought and washed, as Paul wrote here in 1 Corinthians 6, are being sanctified by the presence and gift of the Holy Spirit who indwells us, calling us to Christ-likeness and revealing the character and holiness of God, our daily need of Him and guiding how we live. And so it's in that light, friends, that I want to invite you to stand as we have our scripture reading today from 2 Corinthians 
If you were in Acts, aha, gotcha, keep your finger there. We'll be there in a minute. But 2 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 12, is our reading for today. Since we have such a hope, we've talked about that, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, the Old Testament right there, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face... Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray today that we, with unveiled faces, would be able to see what your word has for us, that you would reveal in our hearts and in our lives the things that needs to change as we um, are called to Christ's likeness. That we would be bold and our worship and devotion of you, and that we would not lose heart, no matter how long this sermon goes. Amen. Have a seat. We are, again, in Acts, and I wanted to read that because that was, it sets the tone for not only what has happened, but where we're going in, in the story today. And so I'm going to pick right back up into Acts chapter 9. Uh, beginning actually in verse 18 through 20, and pick up with the last little bit of where we left off last week in Saul's conversion. Acts chapter 9, verse 18. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight, Saul. And he rose and was baptized. We talked last week about how those should be like right next to each other. You know, we make, honestly, in many churches, we make baptisms a big deal. Oh, I've got to be ready. For, for what? To get wet? Did you get a shower yesterday? You're ready. You know, like, um, and it's repent and be baptized. And so here he was. So, and then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Must have been good food. Sometimes when I take food, I'm lethargic. But he was strengthened, which is awesome. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues saying he is the Son of God. And I want to draw our first contrast today here, or, or highlight really, not a contrast, but to highlight these two immediately's. 
If you notice in the last couple of verses we've read, beginning verse 18, and immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and immediately Saul could see again. He didn't have to go get LASIK surgery, right? He, he didn't have to take this eye drop medication for four days and then rinse twice and take this pill or something. Like, no, it was immediately he regained his sight. And again, this is the God, this is the power that God in his wisdom and timing can do things immediately that others cannot. Like our best medicine and science today takes time. But God can and does heal immediately, change someone immediately, can appear immediately, answer prayer immediately, and hear immediately. Hearing immediately. I don't want to bypass that one either because it's kind of an important one. If you've ever text messaged anybody a few, about four years ago, Apple and their technological guru-ness came up with these little ellipses dots. And, and it, all it does is inform you of someone's absolute disregard for how important your previous message was. And so you send them a message and you need an answer and a minute goes by and you're like, come on. And you send a whoop, there goes a question mark. Did you get first text? And then, and you see, dot, 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 dot. Oh, they're typing, they're typing. We don't have to wait like that. God hears us when we pray, when we, whoop, send out a prayer. He hears us immediately. And there's good news in that. My wife wanted to be heard immediately earlier this week. She was doing a grocery store run, all right? And so she texted me. Just because it's a fun sound to make. And I did not get back to her in the first 18 seconds. Question mark. Whoop. Like I didn't even see it. I was working. Two minutes later. Are you there? Are you alive? And she didn't say that, but it was like, you probably know what I'm talking about. She was waiting for this immediate response. Whoop. Well, friends... When we, whoop, God hears it immediately. And there's joy there also. So immediately something fell from his eyes like scales and immediately Saul could see. So what is the response of that? Well, he was with the disciples at Damascus for a few days and during that time immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying he's the son of God. I call that just a little bit of a, a change. Because he was out to, to kill the people who are doing exactly what he's doing right now. Right, right there. And immediately he went out and started professing Jesus Christ as Lord. We don't have to turn there, but if you want the reference, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3. Therefore I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is a curse. No one who knows Jesus is ever going to curse the name of Jesus. No one who is a believer of God would ever curse God. Why? Because he's God. Because he's our Lord, because he's our Savior, because he's the sacrifice for us. Why would, why would we blaspheme like that? Likewise, the verse goes on, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. And here, here is Saul, 
publicly and immediately Jesus is Lord, showing us that what was not there now is the Spirit. And there's a lot of people today, I won't try to dwell too long on this, going off book, going off my notes. But there's a lot of, even Christ followers today, who, who have a problem getting over this last hurdle. Jesus is Lord. He's King. We submit to all. We live by His Word. They like to still have some degree of control over their own life, be the master of this or that. Be slave to no one. Have the religion in a box when it fits conveniently every other other Sunday. And we know, hopefully, here that it's not just that. It's beyond these gatherings. But no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. And so here is Saul out there saying, Jesus is Lord, Jesus, Son of the Son of God. And Saul is evidence of a converted and changed life. And only God can do this. Only God can do this. My grandfather was like this. My mom's dad on this side. He, one day he was one way. This was before I was born, obviously. But one day he was one way and then the next. My mom told me he was a, he was a different guy. She remembers it. It's powerful stuff. Only God can do this. Going on in Acts chapter 9, verses 20. And so immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength. I don't think it was the, from the food this time. It's the Spirit in him. And confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. By this point, he had known Jesus as his personal Lord and Savior for days, maybe days. And because of this background, knowing the old scriptures and the pharisaical teachings from Gamaliel, who his, was his mentor, we talked about that last week, he's, now, he's so well-versed in the Old Testament that now, once he sees Jesus and knows who he is, the light bulb comes on. Everything makes sense. He's like, no. So much so that the, the, the Jews in Damascus, he's showing them, he's proving from, to them from the Scriptures that Jesus was who now he's talking about. And it's just a reminder for us today that we need to be in the Word. We need to be in the Word. We need to be reading this daily. And, and our knowledge of this can determine how effective we are or are not in the ministry that God has given us. I heard a quote in a, in a podcast earlier this week. I don't remember where. I've listened to like eight of them. So I would give the credit here if I could remember exactly. Uh, but I believe it was on a Didache podcast with Justin Peters, one of those, so there's some acknowledgement. But saying that the, the spiritual maturity of a church won't rise up beyond that of its leader. And so myself, 
in case you haven't been around for the last year, year and a half, we really, really started, you know, uh, January, a year and a half ago when we started a series called Do I Really Believe That? And this formation or reformation of, of, of our church post-COVID, what God is calling us to, and we've made some changes. I've made some changes. So if I seem different, it's because I am. And that's a good thing. Because it's closer to this. I got a compliment one time a couple of years ago from a sermon I gave without this box and in a much different iteration of self and the spirit as we read earlier being progressed from glory to glory and we're advancing along as we spend time in the word and, and right living before God but I, I, I got a compliment one time which to be honest doesn't happen often so it was good I got a compliment from a sermon and the compliment was it was awesome. I felt like it was a TED Talk. And they meant it. And I took it. I took it the way they meant it. It was, at the time, received well, given well. And now, even two, three years removed, it's like, this is not a TED Talk. This is a holy time. We're opening God's Word together. Called to learn and edify and encourage, build each other, want, build, build each other up. Be reminded of the good news, the, the communion with our Lord. And the joy that should be in our hearts saying, and such were some of you. And now we're not. Hooray every day. Every day. But we need to be in the word. And Saul was able to, <coughs> excuse me, dispute and confound the Jewish leaders in Damascus, simply based on his knowledge of the scriptures. And so when many days had passed, in verse 23, the Jews plotted to kill him. The hunter becomes the hunted. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. He's got to come in and out these gates. He's got to, he's got to go in and out this way. Not so, says the man who knows the scriptures. Referencing the book of Joshua chapter 2, a couple of spies hung out with this lady Rahab in the city of Jericho and were lowered through a wall. And so one of the things that Saul might have had in the back of his brain is make friends with someone who lives on the wall. Good lesson for life, all right? And so at night there, or by his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall. I don't have to go through no gate. Gates are lame. I'm going to go via basket. Lowering him in a basket. Now he references this later of this is an incredibly humbling moment for him. At a time when he was on, on the run and brought very low. His spirit was kind of wrecked. But he was able to escape. And how ironic is this? That Saul was coming to Damascus to condemn the Jews and followers of the way. But because of Jesus, now he's trying to convert the Jews to Jesus Christ. And instead of condemning and convicting the way, he has joined them. 
And over a few days, check this out in case you missed it, but their plot became known to Saul, and they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples, in a matter of days, Saul now has his own posse, his own disciples who are following him around and being like, he's preaching the truth, this guy's got it. In a matter of days, they got followers who were like, you need a way out? I got a basket. To which he's like, all right, if I have to. <laughs> no one wants to go via basket. So he escapes Damascus and begins now the six-day journey back to Jerusalem on what most likely would have been a very important, now a very important road and or spot for him. Just a few days or weeks before where he had encountered Jesus. Going back now on the same road and be like, this is where it happened. Right here. I think that's just moment. Let's go on. Acts chapter 9, verse 26. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. Now, they didn't have social media back then, okay? They were now unaware of what had happened to Saul on the road to Damascus or in Damascus, and here he comes saying, I want to join you. And they're like, no, no, you're here to kill us. This is a ruse. We don't believe you. And, and for probably good reason, because he had stood by and watched men like Stephen be stoned and looked on and, and had other people lay their coats before him, Saul, in, in honor, saying, okay, this is holy man. He's bringing the righteous fire. Get all these people out. And so he comes back into town being like, hey, can I join you? Mm, uh. They were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas... Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem. He's probably apprehensively, but welcomed into the way. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. And they were seeking to kill him. Oh look, new town, same guy. People want to kill him. He's preaching that boldly. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. If you don't recall, we're going to go there. This guy named Barnabas, who stood up and kind of convinced everyone, said, Hey, you know what? Saul did have this encounter. We've heard of him already in the book of Acts. We're only nine chapters in, and we know where this Barnabas, who this Barnabas is. And if you don't remember, I'm fixing to remind you. It's in Acts chapter 4. Right before Ananias and Sapphira, we read that, and we know how that ended for them, but right before that, Acts chapter 4, verse 36, Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means a son of encouragement, a Levite and a native of Cyprus sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is that guy. Same dude. Same Barnabas. It is possible, it is possible that Barnabas may have known Saul before his conversion as the opposer of the way. And they may have even been students of Gamaliel at the same time and have known each other through that. 
But Saul, again, his name will later be changed to Paul and Barnabas, or they're going to link up later again in a couple chapters, and, and they're going to lead many to Christ, and they're going to start churches and go on missionary journeys together, and this is that, what will be later Paul and Barnabas, uh, have a big missionary impact. Years later, they're going to get in a disagreement and go their separate ways over John Mark, who is Barnabas' cousin, uh, deserting them on a missionary trip, but in one of Paul's last letters to the church in Colossae, which uh, is in Turkey, um, and it, it it, it seems that reconciliation was at least in part done between these two. So this, these Paul and Barnabas guys, they're going to tag team for a couple years and become best buds and, and do a whole bunch of church stuff together. And we're going to come to him in a little bit later. But that's who this Barnabas guy is. And so he's welcomed, Saul is welcomed among the followers of the way and he's preaching and disputing all the people and the Hellenistic Jews. And if you recall, he was or had been one. A Hellenistic Jew was someone who had simply been born uh, in, a, in a Jewish religious family, but not living in or around Jerusalem. And he was originally born in Tarsus, and then his family moved when probably he was a young boy, Saul, to, to Jerusalem. So he was a Hellenistic Jew disputing Hellenistic Jews, which is more irony. And then it's of no coincidence then that when he wants, when he's on the run and people want to kill him again in Jerusalem, they ship him off to home, Tarsus, because he was Saul of Tarsus. So he goes back to his old, old home ground to try to get out of there. And so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace. It's funny because we don't know if that's because Saul left, <laughs> disputing as many people as he was, but more likely it's because he was the main aggressor. He was the one hunting down the way. He was the inquisitor. He was the, the bounty hunter, and he was coming after them. Well, now he's one of them, and he's far away. Double bonus. And so there's peace. And the church, Judea and Galilee and Samaria, and the church is being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the church, it multiplied. There's a lot of growth formulas out there. There's a lot of church-isms and a lot of silliness. Uh, a, a church not too far from here uh, a few years ago did something called 24 to Double. And it was this church growth marketing strategy where if you do these things and follow this lesson, the goal is that in two years your church would double in size. Right. There, there's, no, there's no model for that. It doesn't work that way. There are worldly models, and I could tell you what to do in a heartbeat. If we wanted church growth, we could do that. I've been there, done that. And other churches, and I've seen it happen. There is a formula, and it doesn't involve this. Former pastor at First Baptist Orlando years ago, he's not now, but uh, Jim Henry said, you can have a crowd without having a church. If there is any sense or any closeness of any type of formula, it's what's been displayed for us on here in, in Acts chapter 2 and now, now again. The church had peace. It was being built up. They were encouraging one another. And we know how they did that with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Lifting their voice up to the Lord together. So another reason why we sing is so important. Why we encourage each other is so important. Why we say, hey, how is your spiritual life going? It's so important. Hey, what did you read in the Bible this week? It's so important. So they're building each other up. And they were walking in the fear of the Lord. And that's an important one. Again, we can't bypass that. I mentioned a little bit about that last week.
And they were comforted by the Holy Spirit. And the Lord, Lord of the harvest, multiplied the church. God gives the growth. Now as Peter, we're shifting. It's not Saul or Paul now. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. And there he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. This is now the modern-day city of Lod. It's about 22 miles west or northwest of Jerusalem, heading towards the Mediterranean Sea. So you have Jerusalem, Sea of Galilee, River Jordan, and then for you it would be this way. All right, so it is this way. All right, and towards the Mediterranean Sea, which is over here, and then you have, you have Lydda or, or Lod. Uh, most people who actually fly into Israel go through the main airport at, at Lod, if you're ever curious. So anyway, so um, a few things to note here. First of all, now it's Peter. Again, it's not Saul or Paul. But Peter now, it says, he goes to this town and, and notice that, first of all, this man Aeneas is among the saints. And by that we know that he's a believer. He's a follower in the way. He wasn't just some dude in the town because Peter went to go see the followers, the saints there in the town of Lydda, of which Aeneas was one. And Aeneas was bedridden. He was paralyzed for eight years. Something must have happened, possibly an accident or, or, or something, and a man who could walk now could not anymore for eight years. He's bedridden. It's a painful place to be. And Peter doesn't say, I heal you. He doesn't say, be healed. What does he say? He says, Jesus Christ heals you. And he simply also doesn't say just, hooray, you're healed, go in peace. Walk and run and frolic. No, what does he do? He says, Jesus Christ heals you, rise and make your bed. Wait, hold up, all right? I can walk down, the very first thing you want me to do is make up my bed. You want me to... Pack all this stuff, really? I just, as I was doing the scriptural study there, it's just like, man, even as a kid, I didn't want to rise and make my bed, you know? And my legs worked just fine, or so I thought at the time. My legs hurt. I got a five-year-old and a two-year-old who were trying to pull that on me at home, and it, uh-uh, that doesn't work. Your, your legs worked just fine a few minutes ago to go get a snack, now they don't. Mm-hmm. All right, I'll drag you. Here we go. You know, uh, any parent, you've, you know, we've, we've been there. I don't want to rise and make my bed. I don't like rising and making my bed today. 39. I don't like it because my wife has 39 pillows. I don't, the on and off is laborious. Like, it takes an hour, you know, to make and unmake the bed. I... It's a lot of work. That's a lot of pillows. Of which all but two are decoration. That's a lot of work. I don't want to rise and make my bed. But Peter here is giving this man a task. A mission. Hey, congratulations. Your legs work again. 
you've got a mission to do. And it starts by cleaning up this little thing you got going on here. You've been bedridden for eight years. I probably haven't moved too much. This little area over here, we're, we're gonna clean, we need to clean this up. It's nasty. Rise and make your bed. You have work to do, work to be done. And so there's almost not a moment of reprieve of, hooray, my legs work. It's no stand and get to work. And if you want proof that a paralyzed man was healed, have him walk around and do stuff. Just putting that out there. Once we're brought and raised to life, our legs work again. You've got a mission to do. You've got to make your bed. Now again, Aeneas was not unsaved. He was saved. And for some of you, you might be thinking, well, I've been in this dark place for a while. Why couldn't I just be healed from it? Why couldn't I just be healed from it? Why is other things, good things happening to other people? And I'm here, I'm bedridden for eight years. I'm paralyzed in this or that. I have this illness. I have this problem. So Peter's message is, your legs now work. Now get to work. For some of you who know Jesus today, Jesus Christ heals you. Not because I said it. And not because even Peter said it. This is not quoting. It's just simply put, Jesus Christ heals you. That's what he does. So rise and make your bed. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. This is probably one of the worst translations of a name we will see. Dorcas and Tabitha both mean, if you're curious, gazelle. So, if she was named appropriately, she either galloped wherever she went or had an incredible neck. It's just a name, right? Everybody's name means something. So, but we have what was probably called a very gentle woman here. And we're going to find that out. So we're, going to, we're not going to call her Dorcas. Um, just out of respect for Tabitha. We're going to continue with Tabitha. And so there's this town of, of Joppa. And here is a disciple. Again, another one of the way. Uh, and she was full of good works and acts of charity. Another faithful saint. Now, in those days, she became ill. She got sick with something, and then because of that, she died. And when they had washed her for the embalming and the burial and all that kind of stuff that they did, according to the custom of the time, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, near is relative. It was actually about 10 or 11 miles away, but near is relative enough so that like, they heard Peter was there and like, it's close enough. Send the disciples. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. Now keep in mind, Tabitha's already dead. Already dead. But their faith says, Peter's near. Go get him and bring him back. And Joppa's right on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. And all the widows, they, all the widows, they stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Tabitha <laughs> made while she was with them. 
and saying, look, look at this woman's embroidery skills. Fantastic. Second to none. Look at this crochet work. We have doily cup coasters. Everyone in the town knew Tabitha for her cup coasters and crochet work. And here, look, a smocked shirt that she put her son in so that he could have little tiny trains that matched with his sister. And why any parent would want to do that to their son, who's now 39 years old and a preacher, to use as a sermon illustration, no one knows. But there's the story. Look at this woman's sewing skills. Look at all the stuff that she made for everybody. And they're sad because probably, number one, they miss her. Number two, the doily machine has stopped. Right? The embroidery factory has now closed. Tabitha is gone. So there might be multiple levels of sadness here. They're showing them all the clothes and the things that she had done. But Peter put them all outside. You're, either because you're bothering me and you're really loud and I can't concentrate. And yes, the doilies are nice, but just go outside for a minute. You need to be alone. Peter put them all outside and he knelt down and he prayed. And turning to the body, because she's dead, he says, Tabitha... Arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and he raised her up. And then calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. There she is. Wow. And it became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon a tanner. It's so obvious from this story that everyone knew Tabitha was dead. This isn't a she fell asleep thing. She's super dead. And everyone's handling and washing the body. She's dead. They can know what a pulse is. She's dead. My son, five years old, knows what a dead thing is. Right? We're showing that to him over the last week, almost on a daily basis, as the fish tank, one by one, uh, commits another one to the flushest grave. Uh, we had nine, now we have two. And uh, some fungal fin rot that we tried to give medicine, they couldn't save them all, so we have two. The two that are, don't do anything. But anyway, that's the two we got left. And so it's been a daily process of pulling out another tiny dead neon tetra. And I know I watched too many of those nature shows I talked about earlier, one of which is called Meat Eater, about a guy who goes out and hunts and does, you know, fishing, and then he cooks the thing he just acquired from the land, all right? And he'll walk by and every once in a while see that, and I consider that a safe show because that's life, you know, things happen, you know, we're not promoting violence. One day I would like to take my son hunting also, right, and fishing. I look forward to these trips. So we pulled this little neon blue tetra out of the tank, and, and, and Landon says, Daddy, now that it's dead, can we eat it? We're going to lay off the meat eater shows a little bit, all right? He's, he's learning a little bit too much too early. No, and, I'm, and then I try to imagine what a filet would be like from, from a neon tetra and, and the size of tiny knife. I can borrow Ken and Barbie's tiny filet knife and just get tiny little filets. And just, now that it's dead, can we eat it? No, we cannot. Even a child knows what a dead thing is. And they knew Tabitha, 
Dorcas was dead. And it's important that we actually know that and furthermore that we actually believe that. Because when we do, this is an incredible story. Someone who was dead and in a Lazarus-like way brought to life. Isn't that amazing? Tabitha arrives. So if you want a proof a, a, a cripple can, can walk again, make him go do stuff. You want proof someone's not dead? Ta-da! Pre- presents her alive. And the result of these conversions, these are conversions in a matter of speaking. One from being paralyzed to being able to walk. Another from death to life. I call that a pretty big conversion just by the definition of the word, right? Wouldn't you, death to life? Pretty big difference, right? That's why we call it still a conversion today because it's death, chainsaws and flavors, to life. And oh, a cross, I'll just point that way. It's a good, good thing, that way. That's why we built it. The result of these conversions is a paralyzed man to walking and a dead woman to life. And what's the result of that? Well, many believed and turned to the Lord in these two different cities. One whole town was saved because, because Aeneas was paralyzed for eight years. Ever think about that? And even your conversion, your conversion is not about you, it's about God's glory. Saul could not convert himself. He encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus. Aeneas couldn't unparalyze himself. Tabitha couldn't undead herself. Or raise herself from being dead. It is only in Christ that these things were accomplished. And only for his glory at his timing. Again, Aeneas was already one of the saints in Lydda, but he was paralyzed for eight years. Tabitha had been a disciple, full of good works and charity, but had fallen ill and died. And an outsider, one from the world, and even weak Christians today, or those that are immature in their faith, may ask, why would God allow that? Why would God, if he was real or if he cared, why didn't he do something about it when they were lame? You know, and, and just... Prevent the accident from ever happening to Aeneas. Why, when, when Tabitha fell ill, didn't he just heal her illness instead of letting it go all the way and progress to her death? Because God is about God's glory, and he's the only one who is righteously jealous. Had Aeneas never been paralyzed, who in his town may have come to know Christ? As we read in verse 35, all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. These light and momentary troubles that we have kind of puts that in perspective, doesn't it? Had Tabitha not become ill and died, who would have known Christ in her town? Arguably a lot fewer. And less doilies. But as it is, entire towns, cities came to see and know the power and presence of the living God at work. Do you think Aeneas ever wasted a step again in his life? 
Think about that for a second. He was paralyzed for eight years, now he can walk. Do you think he ever wasted another step? I, 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 I would like to doubt it because of the newness that Christ puts in us. And he had a mission. Do you think he ever took walking for granted? Aeneas was probably the first one. Oh, you need that? I'll get up and get that. Check it out. Legs are walking. Legs are walking. I'm putting it to work. You need that? I'll grab that for you. I'll get that. I will serve. You know, and, and he probably would have, he may, he may have had a F-150. You know, he may have had a truck. You know, and, and if you ever had a truck like I did, you get asked one question. Can you help me move? To which our answer is, oh. But Aeneas would have been a type of guy, be like, yes, I will help you move. Why? Because these legs work. These legs work. Check it out. Check it out. Eight years, nothing. Dead. There was my bed. Now, life, walking, doing, mission. This is the heart that God puts in us when we're brought to newness in Christ. And this was probably one of the most selfless guys. He was already one of the saints, but now his legs worked. Like he was saved before, but now see this man at work. Wow. There goes Aeneas. He's just running. There goes Aeneas. Do you think Tabitha ever wasted another day? No, she was dead and now alive. Like some people have had what they might call near-death experiences. They don't top Tabitha. Because she was super very dead. And then super very alive. And, and knowing that, my goodness, do you think she ever wasted another day? Do you think she ever rested from doing good or showing charity or making clothing or more doilies for people? Do you think Tabitha ever had a bad day again? No, every day is a good day. Why? Because I'm alive. What a joy that puts in our heart when we have the right perspective of what Christ has done in and for us. So you had a bad day. You can't. No, there's no bad days for Christ followers. There's harder days, sure. But no bad days. Why? Because I was dead in my sin and now I'm alive. Because I was blind to who I was before and now I can see. Hooray! But you're, but you're in a wheelchair. Yay! But you have a, a, a mental disorder. Yay! But you have this, this illness that won't go away. Yay! But you had a really bad day at work. Yay! But someone made fun of you for being a Christian. Yay! You see where I'm going with this, right? It's, this is the perspective that God puts in our hearts when we understand who we are because of who He is and what He's done for us. Yay! We don't. You think we have a bad day? You think you think we should waste today? Do you think we should waste what we've been given? Hey, do your everyone stand up real quick? Your legs work? Yeah. A little seventh inning stretch here. Okay. All right. Some legs work. Others you've already atrophied. I've been talking too long. That's all right. All right. You can have a seat. Okay. Legs work. Yay! So we got a mission. We got a place to go. We got people to talk to. We got to share the gospel. Use them legs for good. Friends, this is a glimpse of the newness only found in Christ. Newness 
new life, a new creation, a fresh perspective, this freedom with every day and every step we take after our conversion is a blessing and a calling. That's going to lead us to Ephesians chapters 1 for Romans, and we're going to fly right now, so buckle up, make sure your tray table's in their upright and locked positions. Here we go, Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe, according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is our Lord, all power, all might, all authority, all death to life, all brokenness to wholeness, all woundedness to healed, all sick to well, all hopeless to hopeful. Later in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, Paul writes in chains, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So came down to planet earth, fully God, fully man, ascended back into the heaven. With the Father, and He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood. We're growing up, and we all got different things to do, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves up. Stream we go, not downstream culture, tossed by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, by 24 to double, and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, becoming more like Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Friends, some of you in love might today be a little bit paralyzed. Rise. Jesus Christ heals you. Make your bed. Let's get to work. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, as the world and the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They don't know the Lord and they can't say Jesus is Lord because they have no spirit. They cannot say that. 
They're blind. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy, to practice every kind of impurity. And does this not describe the world outside these doors? But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and it's corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true holiness, and so true righteousness and holiness. Put on the old self. Throw it away. Nope. Put on the new self. Yay! Finally, Romans. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who, not, who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds in the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, chainsaws and flamethrowers. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We can spend a whole other sermon just right there, but we're going to keep going. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, I've got that circled even in my Bible, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, you're going to die, I'm going to die, yet we also live forever. The Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. If you have never had a conversion, if you've never given your life to Christ in absolute submission and repentance, maybe you gave it to a feeling in summer camp, maybe you gave it to a pamphlet, maybe you gave it to an emotion or an experience or something in a concert type of environment, I don't, I don't know, but today could be, arguably should be that day for you. Why waste one more day running headlong into eternal death? and punishment, wondering why you exist, hating your life, trying to just make money or just get a better job or just get a better boyfriend or just get a better retirement or just get a better house when all of those just get a betters will one day be dust and gone. Even that boyfriend. It's not enough to just believe. James chapter 2 tells us that even the demons believe that there is one true God and are afraid. 
Like last Sunday's message, it's the equivalent of believing that there is a God as well as, yeah, but I believe the chainsaws and flamethrowers over there, but it's not really that big of a deal. Go just hang out here for a while. Friend, you're, on, you're, at, you're not standing put. You're on a conveyor belt. That way. As Josh Bowman said last week, turn around. Jesus can encounter, and you can encounter Jesus in your life immediately today as powerfully as he did with Saul. You're not going to give your life to a feeling, to a mysticism, to an emotion, to a worship experience, to a denomination. You're trusting Jesus Christ as Lord, Lord of your life, repenting and relenting from your old life and pursuing Christ in his word, his way, his truth, and receiving his life. And if you have had a conversion moment to new life in Jesus, then friends, put off the old self. Put on the new. Daily. Friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, today is also a new day. In which consider yourself new legs, Lieutenant Dan. New legs, new legs, new mission. Make your bed, be about the work. Or new life, dead to life. And if we know Jesus, then we are, as Paul wrote, called to walk in the manner in which we have been called. To live a life reflecting Jesus Christ in us. With all joy, sincerity, truth, love, faith, and hope. Christians, real Christians, don't have bad days. We might have harder days. Days filled with trials or tests. Loss or pain. Jesus even said, in this life you will have trouble. That's a promise. It's coming. It's coming. But we don't have to have bad days because our hope, our life, has been truly given to us through the Holy Spirit by and for Jesus Christ for the glory of the Father forever. Yay! This is good news. We rejoice over this. We should be. And if you don't know Jesus, if you don't live daily with Jesus, if you don't know where you'll spend eternity, if you today have not repented and turned your life to Christ, my call to you today is you need to. If I sound like a weird, crazy guy up here, just he's really excited about something, and you don't know what that is, friend, I can tell you what it is. It's Jesus. And if you do know Jesus and live daily with him, knowing as such were some of you, knowing who we were before Christ. Hallelujah. Because we ain't him. Live in a manner of your calling with all humility and gentleness and patience. Be students of the word. Be peacemakers. Be truth seekers. Be missionaries in your workplaces, in your schools. The school's just getting ready to start this week. Any youngin still left in here, not asleep, you got a mission to do. If your legs work, run the race marked out for you. Be leaders in the home, especially men. Be joyful, be in prayer, be thankful that the fruit of the Spirit would in us overflow into our community and neighbors who are desperately hungry for the bread of life and the water that never runs dry. 
Problem is they don't even know how hungry they are. They think they're full. But it's lies and emptiness and death. Live out your calling. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not let be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. And there's basically only two points in every message over this last year, in case you have or have not realized it. There's two main points in every sermon. Number one, repent. Repent from sin. Turn your life around to Jesus Christ. It's going to be the call. And then secondarily, live in a manner of your calling. For those of us who have been saved, who know this new life I'm talking about, who are daily putting off the old self and putting on the new self. And some days it might be harder than others to do that. Thanks be to God, who makes all things new. We are a new creation in Christ. And this new creation and what God has done for us, the salvation of the Son, Jesus Christ, and in the presence of the Holy Spirit, we rejoice. This is good news. And our world needs good news. And this is it. This is it. If you're not, if you don't know Jesus today, Mike, call my heart, cry my heart. It's just, turn your life around. Repent, and I'll, I'll, I'll talk you through that. Our elders will talk you through that. If you need help, we're here at True Life Church. We guide people to take the next step. I'll help you take step one. I'll hold your hand and raise you up. Not because of what I'm doing, because of what Christ is doing. We'll help you. And if you are saved, if your legs work, Get to work. Make your bed. We got a mission to do because of who Christ is and what he has done for and in us. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to this message. 
This weekly podcast is a ministry of True Life Church. If you'd like to help keep these audio sermons available, you can support our ministry online at www.truelifemelbourne.com forward slash give. Until next time, may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus.